Our second reading this morning comes to us from Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. We'll be reading from chapter 2, verses 6 through 12. Listen for God's word to you. As for human praise, we have never sought it from you or from anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make some demands of you, but instead we were like children among you, or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Don't you remember, dear brothers and sisters, how hard we worked among you? Night and day we toiled to earn a living so we would not be a burden to any of you as we preached God's good news to you. You yourselves are our witnesses, and so is God, that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. And you know that we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I'd like to begin by wishing everyone a happy Father's Day. Today, where's my Bible? Um, I am wondering. Now I'm all, I'm all messed up. So, I'm flustered. That's exactly the right word. So, um, so happy Father's Day. Let's start all over again. Happy Father's Day. Um, today is Father's Day, and it's um, it's a, a reason we're we're going to take a break today from the. This is the worst Bible. <laughs> Man. All right. Amen. All right. Well, I'm just going to cope. Okay. There's one that's not falling apart at least. Okay. All right. So, um, so today is Father's Day. We're taking a break. We've been in a sermon series about the Sermon on the Mount, but we can afford to take a break because we've got, um, thank you. We've got, um, eight years into that and a couple more weeks won't matter. So we're going to take a break today and not talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Instead, we're going to talk about fathers. And, um, the reason for that is is maybe not apparent because um, Father's Day is not a, a church holiday. It's not a regular holiday in the church, which may seem like a surprise because you'd think it might be. With all the fathers everywhere um, in church culture, you'd think that there would be. I mean, if you grew up in a Catholic church or an Orthodox church, you know that the, the term of address for um, the, the local parish leader is father. You go up to the, the priest and you say father this or father that. So you already start with a father there. But um, but there's there's more than that in the um, in the first two or three centuries of the Christian movement, there were theologians who wrote about Christianity. Or you know, it didn't make the cut. It didn't didn't get into the Bible. But they wrote about kind of their experience and their thinking about Jesus. And so, uh, what those people are called is um, the uh, the writers of the patristic literature or the church fathers. They're sometimes called the church fathers, and they wrote. Patristic literature, the the study of those works of theology is called the patristics, and it's particularly important. I mean, it's particular. It's it's important across the entire uh, Christian church, but it's especially important in the Orthodox Church. And that reminds me, the um, the Orthodox Church they have patriarchs. So here's a picture of the Russian Orthodox patriarch. Uh, his name is Kirill, I think, um, and he is the 
he is to Russian Orthodoxy as the Pope is to Catholicism. So here he is with Pope Francis. And in fact, the word uh, Pope actually also means father. It's from, it's a Latin form of a Greek word that means father. So, so a lot of fathers going on. And maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe people decided, you know, we've got enough patriarchy in the church, right? You know, uh, there are, uh, there's certainly no disputing that, that Christianity has historically, uh, certainly in the last uh, five or six centuries, devalued the gifts of women and not allowed women to serve in the church to the to the um, level that God has gifted them. Um, and in fact, there are Protestant churches, um, Orthodox church and Catholic churches, of course, but also many Protestant churches uh, have a, a theological doctrine called complementarism, which means that there are separate uh, roles for men and women in the church, and by coincidence, the men have the leadership roles. So um, it's just a coincidence. Um, and and um, so... So there is a lot of patriarchy in the church. And so, uh, this is, this is the, the challenge we have of how do we, how do we, um, how do we recognize the fact that Christianity is steeped in patriarchy and at the same time recognize that, um, fathers are important. Because we, we know that fathers are important. Back in April, we had, uh, in our, in our sermon series about the, um, Apostles' Creed, we learned that fathers have a special vocation, that all of us as Christians are called to reflect God, God's glory into the world. But fathers especially are given an, a, a burden, a, an extra vocation of being someone that people can look at and say, okay, based on how you relate to your wife, how you relate to your children, I get a better understanding of what it means to be a father. And that helps me understand God a little bit better. You know, it, we're not called to be God, but we're called to reflect God in a way that people can see God in us. So fathers have an extra vocation. Um, and we saw that. So theologically, fathers are important. But increasingly, secular science is telling us the ways that, God, that fathers are important. And, um, you know, I'm kind of a science geek. Um, so I'm always kind of, I, I love to, to bring in some, some science when it, when it suits my purpose. So, um, so um, I want to tell you some, some provocative stuff from the world of science about fathers. Um, because um, I just find it fascinating. And I hope you will, too. Um, now, before I do, I want to point out, uh, unfortunately, you know, the ethical people won't let us um, dissect humans after an experiment. So, um, so we don't know always for sure what the reasoning is, right? You know, what is actually going on? We don't understand mechanisms so well, but we do understand um, over a population. We can look at a population and say something seems to be going on. And then the scientists try to figure out, okay, well, what is the mechanism? Why does that happen? But one of the most provocative things I've heard about fatherhood um, is that if you grow up in a family, if you grow up in a household without a father, your telomeres are 14% shorter by ninth grade, by, by, not, by age nine. So what is a telomere? A telomere is the, the little cap on the end of your DNA. Okay, so you know what DNA is? It's kind of the blueprint in your cells. Everything you do as a human, everything your body does is with DNA. It's like a blueprint. It tells you how to make all the chemicals that make your body work, right? And it's got it on the end, it's got a little cap. So think of a shoelace. And you know the little plastic thing at the end of a shoelace? That's like a telomere. So it keeps your shoelace from unraveling, right? Well, DNA has the same thing, and it's called a telomere. And scientists have discovered that the longer they are, the longer you have to live. Because over time, by the time you get to be 100, 120, they're gone. And some of us, they're gone sooner. But some of us, um, they don't die, we don't die of, of our cells all dying. We die of other causes. But telomeres are closely associated with um, lifespan. And think about it, a nine-year-old, a nine-year-old 
who grows up in a house without a father has a telomere that is 14% shorter. So what's causing that? Well, scientists are working on that. They don't know all the reasons for all these things, but it's a very provocative finding. Um, one of the things that they, they often try to do is they try to control for factors like race and education and income. And they found in, a, in any number of studies, they found that there are consistently worse outcomes for children who grow up in father-deprived environments, even when they control for race and education and um, income levels. So fathers seem to be very important. And um, I will just give you one example. I don't have it listed, do I? Uh, some examples of the ways that they... Um, that the, of the worst outcomes, they, they tend to be different for girls and boys. Uh, girls tend to um, internalize their difficulties. They tend to be more depressed. They sometimes uh, have cutting behavior and things like that. Sometimes they get involved with substance abuse. Boys tend to be more externalizers. They do uh, uh, have a higher prevalence of substance abuse, but they also um, have higher rates of delinquency than boys who grow up in a father-rich home. Um, and they also are more likely to be incarcerated. There's a study that shows that children who grow up without a father have a two times higher rate of being um, uh, of dropping out of high school, even when you control for their family background in terms of race and income and things like that. So there's something going on with fathers, and a lot of it we don't know all the reasons, but we are provoked into curiosity by what's going on with that. One of the things... Um, that uh, scientists are working on is, okay, well, what, what makes fathers special? Humans are one of um, only 10% of mammal species that have fathers who are involved with the children. Most mammals, the father mates with the mother, and then he's out of the picture. He's, he's, he's gone. But humans are one of that other, other 10% that do. And um, we, we believe that, um, that uh, part of it is because there are changes to our, to our neurochemistry. We are adapted for for being fathers. There's a study. I love this study. Um, here's a picture of me and my son. You can see what he's doing there, right? Yeah, I know. He's so cute. Um, he used to be cute. Um, I used to be young. Um, so, um, so you see what he's doing. You probably, you've, if you've ever had a child, you know that they like to do that. They like to grip onto things. There was a study that had newborn... This is my son. He's about 10 minutes old there. Um, and um, he's gripping my finger. They did a study. They gave newborn uh, fathers of newborn children of uh, their babies. They or the stu- they had them. They let them work with them for sixty minutes, and then they obscured the baby from the father's view. Okay, so sixty minutes of acquaintance, never met this child before, right? They obscured the child from the father's view, and then they had the father feel a bunch of different baby hands, and they could tell after just sixty minutes, without sight, just by touching the baby's hand, who's child it was, which is pretty amazing. I think there's something really deep in in us as fathers uh, that makes us gravitate toward um, uh, being fathers. There's something deep in humans that makes us good at being fathers. Um, Scientists talk about something called dad brain, um, and there's something that happens if you measure a man's uh, uh, blood testosterone level a couple of weeks before his partner gives birth, um, it'll be at one level. And after the baby is born, it'll drop to about a third of that, to, to two-thirds of that level. So 67%, you lose about 33, 33% of your blood testosterone level when you have, uh, when, when you become a father. Um, so people talk about dad brain. 
Um, one of the neat things, though, is your t- testosterone level goes down, but your oxytocin level goes up. Oxytocin is a chemical that's associated with pleasure. Um, it's, it's one of the neurotransmitters that's used for, for us um, having, having pleasurable sensations. Um, and one of the really interesting things is in fathers, the oxytocin level is not associated with affectionate behavior in the child the way it is with women. Women typically, if you, you know, cuddle a little baby, it gives you a burst of pleasure. And it does to a limited extent for men, but especially for fathers, what gives them that burst of pleasure is rough and tumble play. So, and, and they like, you know, tossing the baby up and doing other things that frighten the mothers, right? So, you're, I, I hear some laughs of recognition. But, but fathers, fathers get a pleasure, a little burst of pleasure out of roughhousing with the kids. So, um, that's that's part of uh, dad brain. Uh, um, one of the things that's interesting about dad brain is researchers watch fathers interacting with their children, and they they uh, see positive and negative interactions. And so they they asked fathers who had positive interactions with their children for you know lengthy positive interactions with their children. They asked them um, questions that the father should have been able to answer, and the fathers don't. So you know maybe dad brain means we're also stupid. Maybe that's where the the TV you know sitcom dad comes from. The idea of um, he's he's a loving father, but also he's kind of clueless. So maybe that's that's where that comes from. I, I don't know, but it's a, it's another provocative finding. So what is dad brain? Well, maybe it's all of those things. But one of the interesting things about the the dads who roughhouse with their children is um, is that infants like it too. Infants gravitate toward the fathers in a setting where they have a choice of both, assuming that they have been fed recently, they're not hungry, and they um, have, a, have a dry diaper. And then you put both parents in front of them. They won't go back to the one who just fed them. They will go back to the father. And it's because they suspect that when the father picks them up, it means it's playtime. So... So this is something they find, and I don't know if you've discovered that in your own life, but that's something, um, uh, that's a finding um, that uh, researchers have found, is that kids seem to like the rough-and-tumble play, too, that it helps them uh, push boundaries and so forth. It helps develop their brain or something like that. So, so um, theologically, fathers are important, but increasingly science is telling us that fathers are important as well. So we're increasingly seeing that there's there's probably a reason that out of 10% of mammal species that that... Um, took the approach of having the father stick around. We're one of them, and it doesn't make uh, it doesn't surprise us that then our our um, biochemistry, our neurology, is designed to make us uh, good at being fathers. So, since fatherhood is important, what does Scripture tell us? Does Scripture tell us anything about how to do it well? Well. It does, unsurprisingly. You know, you're in a church and I've got some things to say about that. So what I want to do is I want to look at a passage of scripture. It doesn't tell us like, here's a list of rules, um, but it does paint a picture that I think we can, we can look at and say, okay, all right, that helps me understand how I can be uh, a father well. So what I want to do is I want to look at 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is an absolutely fascinating letter. Scholars tell us it is the oldest of the documents that came to be called the New Testament. It was written about 50. Okay, about 50, maybe 51 A.D. And um, if you think about it, that's no more at most about 20 years after the resurrection. So um, think back to 20 years ago. Hugo Chavez got, arre- got elected in um, Venezuela. Um, Osama bin Laden blew up the embassies in, Kimbis- in Kenya and Tanzania. 
um, Google was founded. Some of the things that happened in 1998, just 20 years ago, and they continue to reverberate today. We still, we still have, have everyday access to, to the results of things that happened 20 years ago. So this letter was written just 20 years ago. But its circumstances of being written, uh, not 20 years ago, but the resurrection was only 20 years earlier. But the circumstances are also interesting because Paul had, had founded the church in Thessalonica and then he had to leave. There was opposition that was stirred up in the community and he was kind of chased out of town. And so he, he landed in a, um, a town called Corinth um, in southern Greece. Thessalonica is in northern Greece. It's in a, a part of Greece called Macedonia. I don't know, some of you may have seen in the news, there was a Greece and, and the, uh, one of the former Yugoslav republics, another thing that happened about 25 years ago, um, uh, one of the former Yugoslav republics were fighting over the name Macedonia because they both wanted to be called Macedonia and they finally settled that dispute this week. So now it's the Republic of Northern Macedonia and then the region of Greece is called Macedonia. So Paul wrote this letter back from Corinth in southern Greece to Macedonia, this church in Thessalonica in northern Greece. He wrote this letter and he said, I didn't leave voluntarily. Paul seems to have some concern that people thought that he had kind of taken the money and run. Right, that he was a fly-by-night kind of went through telling a good story and then took the money and ran. Well, he says, "Look, I didn't take any money. In fact, um, we we read how he says um, he says that uh, he tells us that you remember how um, uh, I worked. We worked night and day so we might not burden any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So Paul." Paul points out that he didn't take the money and run. He he left um, under bad circumstances, but it wasn't because he wanted to. He his circumstances forced him to leave. And then he paints this picture of what it was like for him when he was in Thessalonica. And he paints this picture and he draws on every single word he can think of to describe a family. So he begins by talking about how we were infants among you. Our, our translation says children. We were infants. Um, we were children among you. And then he changes instantly. He says, or we were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. Uh, the word he actually uses is not mother. He says it's a wet nurse. And in that culture, there was often a distinction between uh, mothers and wet nurses. Um, but he's saying this is a wet nurse who's taking care of her own children. So they're beloved, they're beloved figures in that culture. Everyone could point to a wet nurse and say, you know, I remember, you know, mama or whatever they called her. I remember her. But in this case, she loves me even more because I'm her own child. So he's saying, a mother feeding her own children. And then a moment later, he says, remember, brothers and sisters. And then he says, um, we were like a father to you. So we treated each of you like a father treats his own children. And then later on in the same chapter, he goes on and says, so when we left, it felt like being orphaned. So he throws up this whole cloud of family imagery to tell us what it was like being in that church. So, if we go back to this question, what does Paul say about being a father? What does Paul teach us so we can understand how to be a father? Well, do you notice what what he says fathers do? He says, um, he says, uh, we treated you as each of you, we treated each of you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you, and urged you. He doesn't say, we scolded you, 
we were harsh to you, we were strict, we grounded you that time you did that thing, right? Paul says, we pleaded with you. Now, I don't know about you, but I have an image of ancient Greco-Roman culture, you know, talking about the paterfamilias and, you know, the, 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 the patriarchal society where, where everything kind of, you know, the, the rules came down from on high and dad was the local law enforcement. And, and Paul is saying, no, we pled with you. We didn't power up. We powered down. We related to you like a father should. We related to you like those fathers that children gravitate toward. Because when dad picks them up, they think it's playtime. And is that is that spelled out explicitly here? No, but in the context of this loving family picture, he's saying, I was all those guys. I was the child. I was the mother. I was the wet nurse. I was the brother, the sister, and the father. It's hard for us to picture Paul seeing himself in all those images and at the same time saying, I was the strict disciplinarian. So just from the text alone, it's pretty obvious that Paul is not saying that the way to be a good father is to be, um, is to be a strict disciplinarian. But we also have other letters by Paul. Later on, Paul writes a letter to a church in Ephesus, a different church that he was also forced to leave. And he says to them, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. He sums up basically how to be a good father in one sentence. Do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. He says, you are wired to have fun with your kids. You're wired for your kids to gravitate towards you. Roll with that. Keep doing more of that. That that's the way to be a good father. So, one of the things um, I'd like to do is talk about, uh, I'd like to close by talking about some implications and maybe some applications of this teaching. So, the first one, because I'm a church person, um, I just have to say this. Did you know what Paul said about, did you notice what Paul said about what it's like to be in a church. He says, we didn't just share the gospel, we shared our lives. If you are not related to the other people in this church in that way, if you could not write this letter and say, I felt like a, a child or a wet nurse or, or um, a brother, sister, father, to the people around you, that's the goal. That is the goal. Christ calls us to be not just a community of people who came together in a group, but actually a family where we share life with one another. That's the picture that Paul paints. So ask yourself, what can I do to make this church easier to plug into? And if you're not plugged in, maybe you should take a step and say, how can I get to be more connected to the people in this church? How can they become more a part of my family? So that's kind of the the pastor has to say that. But because it's Father's Day, I want to talk about some other implications. The first one, as I said, is not to power up. Paul Paul invites us to say, how about if you become the father that the kids gravitate toward? You know, mom is strict. Mom's mom's always telling me what, what you know, don't eat that because it's bad for you or something like that. And dad's saying, you know, go ahead and have the pizza. You know, let's mom's away. Let's have some fun, right? Mom, dad is subverting everything mom's trying to accomplish, right? He says, he says, roll with that. He says, that's who you are, right? That's what it means to be a good dad. Lower the temperature. This week I went to, or not this week, uh, earlier this month I went to Spring Creek Correctional Facility. The Methodist Conference down in Seward was was um, uh, on Friday and Saturday. But we had an opportunity on Thursday to get a tour of the Spring Creek Correctional Facility and hear about the restorative um, 
justice ministry, uh, uh, not ministry, it's a program, it's the, through the prison. Um, and um, I, Bill, the, the guy who is, I, I want to call him a warden, he had a different title, as director or something like that, but the, the chief corrections official at the, at the prison um, gave us the tour himself, and one of the things he said is that the purpose of his administration is to lower the temperature in the prison. And he gave us lots of examples of the things he's trying to do to make the prison just less miserable. That that where tensions are high, everything he's trying to do is to lower them. And he gave us one one example, or, or I'll share with you. He gave us many. I'll share with you just one. He talked about how if two prisoners get in a fight out in the yard, okay, there's a fight out in the yard, the, the corrections officers bring them into um, this little holding cell where they're going to process them and then take them to um, administrative segregation, which is the fancy word for solitary confinement. So he talked about that, and he said, what we used to do is we'd get into a whole new fight because the protocol said we strip search you, we put you in new clothes, and take you off to administrative segregation. That's what the protocol told us to do. But what we're trying to do is to lower the temperature. So he said, you know, I have personally... You know, been in fights with prisoners in this in this room right here, and my blood has been on the bottom of this cell, right? And I think that's a dumb way of doing things. So he said, "Here's what we did: we got a prisoner to paint this mural, and so the, the the cell now instead of being kind of concrete gray or something, is now painted with um, a prisoner's uh, uh, fantastic imagery of Hawaii. Okay, it's a beautiful tropical beach. There's you know waves and and uh, palm trees, and it, it looks gorgeous. And I imagine, you know, spending five years in prison or something makes it even more, uh, more luscious. And he says, so what we do is we bring them into this room, and then we go away for 30 minutes, right? And they just sit there, and they calm down. And the COs calm down, right? We're lowering the temperature. And as a result, we get better results. I talked to um, Jim Jim um, Depkin, who's the pastor of the Methodist Church in Seward in Moose Pass, and he said when he first was called to the church in Seward, he visited a Spring Creek Correctional Facility, and it was a very heavy place. He said he went home and told his children, don't ever commit crime, because it was just that kind of experience. And he said the whole tone of the prison today is completely different. So fathers, grandfathers, People in father roles. Can you be as wise with your family as the warden is in a prison? Can you seek to lower the temperature? You know, Paul said, don't provoke your children. Be like a wet nurse. Be like a child among them. There's a scientist um, in the University of Pennsylvania who was asked to describe what it was that fathers did in a family. He said, uh, she said, Fathers added color, fun, informality, and accent to family life. We were repeatedly struck by the ways fathers lightened the tone of family life. I don't know if this is your picture of fathers, right? I mean, we all come with our our own stories. Maybe this is not your own picture if you are a father. But it's what fathers were made to do. It's what we do best. And it's the picture that Scripture paints for how we can do it well. Fathers are important. They're important scientifically. They're important theologically. So let's be good fathers.
Let me point out two last things and we'll close. One of the things I would invite people who are not fathers to do is to recognize the unique roles of fathers. One of the things that that comes through in a lot of the literature is that um, moms exercise a gatekeeping function on fathers. That basically they say, don't roughhouse with the children because it's bad for them or it makes me nervous and I'm going to assume nervous is the same as bad. So I would invite mothers and people who have motherly sort of instincts to give fathers some space. I mean, don't let them do bad harm to children. But give it a minute. See how the child reacts. And if there's tears, once they're dry, see what the child does. Does the child come back? Did the child actually enjoy it? Right? Got a little startled, maybe freaked out for a moment, but after the tears said, you know, I want more of that. So I would invite people who have that gatekeeping role to maybe open the gate a little wider and give fathers an opportunity to be more who they're designed to be. And then finally, because because fatherhood is so important, I think we as a church, as a ministry of mercy, should recognize the extra burden that people face in fatherless homes. Single moms, uh, uh, grandparents, people who are dealing with children that they didn't expect to be dealing with, um, with less resources, less help than they had hoped for. I think we as a church are called to think of ways that we can be supporting people, the children and the parents in fatherless homes. Because fatherhood is important. But the way to do it well is not to power up, but to power down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, we thank you for the gift of fatherhood. It's hard to imagine what this world would be like if we were the type of mammal that, that, uh, simply reproduced and then mothers were the only parent. Lord, um, you know, and your heart breaks for all the, the bad dads in this world. So Lord, help, um, everyone who is in a fatherly role, whether they are fathers, stepfathers, foster fathers, grandparents, to do it well. Help us to provide the support and encouragement to uh, the parents, but also to provide that stretching, exciting, fun aspect to the development of children. And Lord, as a church and as Christians, guide us so we can support people who are not blessed with intact two-parent families. We pray it all through Christ our Lord. Amen.